All right, good morning again and welcome to our worship service. We are going to be in John chapter 20. And um, we are, we've been going through the Gospel of John. And we've been uh, going verse by verse. It's okay. I know how you feel, kid. I was just doing the same thing in the, in the back. My wife was trying to get me out here. No, I'm just kidding. So yeah, this has uh, been an interesting trek through the Gospel of John. We take it verse by verse um, to really squeeze all the truth out of Scripture that we can. And so today we're going to be in John chapter 20, and we're in verses 19 to 23. So I'm going to read now. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And here's the anchor text for today. We're going to be really sort of digging into this uh, a little bit. And this is a, a very controversial verse. It says in verse 23, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And so just to give you a context here, Jesus has been risen from the dead one day. And so this is the evening that he was risen from the dead. And he was risen from the dead on the first day of the week. And John uh, and all the gospel writers go out of their way to not only say it once, but twice. As we know, John is the master of repetition. And when he says things more than once, we want to make sure that we pay attention. We dig into that and and see what it is that he's trying trying to show us. And so he already mentioned it on verse 1 of chapter 20. And so he mentions it again here. But what is he getting to? And that's what's what we're going to discuss first. <clears throat> so I guess to introduce this whole thing, a good comparison would be what's the difference between implementation and achievement? What's the difference between those two things? Well, to implement is to bring something about, to put something into practice. Achievement is to succeed in accomplishing something. So, for instance, a college degree is an achievement, but getting a corresponding career to that college degree would be a form of implementation. We see tools the same way, like take a surgeon's knife. Okay, that's obviously an achievement, but it doesn't do anything until that surgeon gets it and they use it to implement surgery. Many of us could relate to this. We all have exercise equipment at the house, treadmills and bikes and things like that. And uh, we know that their creation is great, but without using them, they're not beneficial. And by the way, hanging clothes and coats and stuff doesn't count for implementation. Any product or invention we have, look all around the room, everything shows achievement, but until it's implemented, that product or that object or that tool really doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It's pretty much useless. 
Now, God performed a magnificent achievement by sending Jesus to the cross for our sins. Jesus accomplished the victory. He achieved his goal of quenching the sin of the world, defeating evil, and overcoming death. But if he stopped there, his goal of redeeming the world and reconciling his people back to himself would have fallen short. It required an additional step. So the achievement of Christ on the cross is what he did, but now there needs to be implementation. Because of his grace and wisdom, he has ordained that his reborn people, his church, you and me, in the power of the Holy Spirit, are called to go out and implement the victory, implement the achievement that Jesus has done. How? By proclaiming the gospel throughout the world, by living out the gospel to those around us. Jesus achieved that victory, and now, until he returns, we are to be building forward and toward that ultimate goal, which is his return and our resurrection. And really, that's what this is all about. John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23, is about implementation. And it's written all over the passage. It's about implementing the victory of the cross, the resurrection, and soon, obviously, the ascension, despite our fears, despite our shortcomings, despite our personalities, John wants us to get out there and implement. Now, this is the first interaction with the disciples that Jesus has after he rose from the dead, where they're all together. You know, he had a few come to uh, to to the grave, some of the women, By this time, he had already walked the road to Emmaus with the two disciples that didn't know who he was. But now we see him coming to the place that they were hiding out, and he comes in, and he wastes no time. As soon as he comes in, John only records what he wants us to hear about this interaction, and it's all about a serious charge for Christians to mission, a serious charge for Christians to evangelization, proclaiming the gospel with Christ's message of forgiveness, hope, and restoration. So how do we implement this accomplishment? How do we implement it in our own lives and in the world? Well, I think John tells us in many different ways here, but the first part that he wants us to see is that we implement the victory of the cross by acknowledging and by being part of the new order that Jesus has brought in with the resurrection, this new order. What is this new order? Well, resurrection was never supposed to happen in the middle of of time, in the middle of history. Any belief of a resurrected body, a dead body coming back to life, was only going to be either their spirit, that was angels, they believed in that, But at the very end, the Jewish people believed there would be a resurrection. But here we have it in the middle of history. And what Jesus is in fact doing and what John is showing us here is that this new order that we are a part of is the new creation that Jesus launched, him being the firstborn and the firstfruits of that. And that's why John starts out again 
by telling us it's the first day of the week. Now, if you missed the previous sermons on this, the first day of the week is, is, is implying that this is the first day. Remember again, Jesus died on the sixth day. And we could parallel that to the garden. It is finished. And Jesus at the cross on that sixth day is finished. And then on the day of the Sabbath, he rested. Now remember the days, the calendars were a little different with the people from Israel at the time. Their night started at 6, or their day began at 6 p.m. But that eighth day, eight being the number of Jesus, eight being the symbol of new creation, John is trying to tell us there is now something new. There is now something different. But he doesn't just tell us the first day of the week. He goes even a little bit further, and John is the only one that records this. Jesus walks in to an apparently completely shut and locked door. They're hiding, they're afraid. Jesus' new body allows them to walk through and come in through that door. He could walk through and come in through that door. They see him, and what happens? They were afraid. It says in Luke's gospel, they were pretty terrified. What is going on here? But Jesus says, peace be with you. And again, John shows him his hands and his side. John, why else was John telling us about all this? Does anybody remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about that Gnostic belief that Jesus really didn't die on the cross. His body really wasn't physical. That's what some of, the, some of the stories started to propagate, especially around the time John was writing this. So John's saying, no, he had a physical body, and he walked through the door. We touched him, and he even says that in 1 John, that what we've touched with our own hands. And so John is letting us know, though, there's a side here that has the hole in it, like I said, the hands, and then Luke even talks about his feet. But really, what's the most coolest thing about this whole passage? He says, peace be with you. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So as the Father sent me to be God to Israel, I am sending you to be God to the world. What Jesus did for Israel, we need to go out and do for the world. But Jesus, John takes this a little step further. He says, peace be with you. Uh, The Father sends me, I send you. And what does he do? It's one of the worst things you could ever do to me, especially in the morning, is breathe on me. But Jesus breathes on them. Amazing God breath. So much there, right? The scripture says that the word of God is God breathed. It's the breath of God. That's what the scripture has said. When it talks about every single word of God is inspired, that comes from God breathing. So the word of God is God breathed out. So Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a really interesting word. You guys heard what Kevin read up here, right? Those Old Testament passages are not random. At least I tried them not to be. But out of all the Bible John chose this word that's also used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was active at this time. He uses the word breath, the same one we see in Genesis 2-7. The Lord God formed man of dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils, what? 
the breath of life, and man became a living being. So here we have Jesus again, this new creation, this new world, with his new disciples, the twelve. As we know, there's one missing, Thomas, and there's also another one missing, who? Judas. But he breathes on them, just like he breathed that breath into Adam and that first man. Now, John is constantly bringing us to the garden in this passage. Again, Jesus was where? Buried in the garden. Mary comes. There's a tomb in the garden. She supposes Jesus is the what? The gardener. And now we see Jesus again breathing the breath of life in the same chapter. This is echoing what happened in the beginning. That original creation, and it's now showing it's a new creation. Now you are going out to do new things. You are, you are the temple now. People aren't going to come to Jerusalem to the temple. Nope. The temple is you, and you're going to go out to the world. And as the Father sent me, I am sending you. And again in Ezekiel 37, when he breathed onto those bones, and he said, prophecy, son of man, say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, breathe on those slain, and what? They come to life. Now, this is a specific prophecy, a promise from God to the exiles that you are going to come alive again, and I am going to put my breath in you. And did they come alive again? They did. But in Scripture, when we see a prophecy fulfilled in the Old Testament, we ought not to go search for the comparison in the New. The only time we want to do a double prophecy is when it literally is in the New Testament, like we're seeing right now. We're seeing John point to these same words. We're seeing this new creation. We're seeing this new, quote-unquote, reformed, renewed Israel about to go out to the world. So John is giving us this picture of new creation. Now, he's also giving us a picture here of the community of believers. We all need to be in a community. That's how God has designed the church. We're not to be lone rangers. We're not to be isolated. God wants us around the body, the community of, the, of, of believers. And so a lot of times people say, well, <clears throat> you see, this passage is just for the disciples. Because they have to remit sins and they have to retain sins. But John is saying no, and so is Luke. He's saying that the 11 and those that were with them were there. And here John is saying the disciples were there. So this is a command that Jesus gives to go to everyone to go out into the world and be this hands and feet and mouth of Christ. He's not just talking to the apostles. So that brings us to the main anchor part of the text. Receive the Holy Spirit. Again, now this is not the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we're seeing in the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts has a baptism of the Spirit. In chapter 2. And then if you look, those same people that got baptized and empowered with the Spirit, they got powered again and again and again and again. So the Spirit wishes He'll come down, He'll empower us. But this is not talking about that. He's saying, receive the Holy Spirit. You are now fully converted. The Spirit is now living in you. Receive the Spirit and now go be. When I was to Israel, you go be. As the Father sent me, I send you. Now, if you've been paying attention in John, his favorite word to put with Jesus is sent. 
Jesus says it, I think it's like 22 times or something like that. I, I have to go and do what the Father has sent me. I've been sent from the Father for this. Do a word search in John for sent. And then it's this culmination, sent, 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 and then boom, here's that picture of it. it. The real sending is you and I going out into the world and sharing the gospel. So there has to be this. But what do we actually do? What is the, how do we implement this victory? He's saying right here, forgive sins and retain sins. What does that mean? So I can go out and forgive sins. I'm not forgiving you. I'm retaining your sins. That's not what it means, does it? See, we have to understand what this means in order to really get what we're supposed to be doing out there implementing this victory. So to show you what it means, I want to first show you what it doesn't mean. So forgiving and retaining sins does not involve moral transgressions where we have the authority to say, hmm, I don't think that's right. No, I'm judging you. That's not what he's talking about there. That's not our job. That's God's job. His job is to forgive sins. Remember, God alone forgives. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And you remember the Pharisees, why is this man speaking that way? Remember he told the paralytic guy to get up, your sins have been forgiven. He said, who could forgive sins but God? Now I'm going to tell you why that was said in, in a minute, but it's not about morally forgiving sins. That's not what it's about. It's not about mandating rituals of repentance. Because this is often used to defend rituals of repentance, like in the Roman Catholic Church, where just you go into a confessional and the priest says to you, your sins are forgiven, now go say so many Hail Marys and Our Fathers as a form of penance. That's not, first of all, it's not biblical. And secondly, that's not what this is referring to. It's not referring to the sinner's prayer. Okay, you come up here, you repeat a prayer after me, and then I'm going to forgive your sins. That's not what it is. Somebody could pray a prayer to God to be saved and to be forgiven. That's great, but that's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about the rites of baptism and so forth and so on. And you may think, because I'm leading to this, it does not confirm papal authority. This serves as the traditional foundation for the Roman Catholic Church doctrine of papal authority, meaning the Pope has ultimate authority, like he's really visibly God, almost. He could forgive and remit sins. And this stems from such an investor of state, St. Peter, who, according to Catholic doctrine, was the first Pope, which I do not believe is historically accurate. So remember, it was only the ten disciples... And Jesus said, you go out and do this. You receive the Holy Spirit. You go out and remit and retain. So what does it mean? Well, I'll give you the definition first. It means the spirit-empowered mission of the church and the continuing and extending of Jesus' work in the world. That's forgiving and retaining sins. And it's not that difficult. Scripture sees, uh, the church sees the scripture as authority. And what we do is we collectively declare the conditions for which God forgives and retains sins. It's called technically, it's called plenary powers. 
Plenary means absolute, unconditional. We have plenary powers. In other words, we are an ambassador for Christ. So we have the authority to declare which sins are forgiven and which sins not, only based upon Jesus and what he has done. We can't be the ones that are actually doing it, but we can be the mouth that proclaims it. Now, this accords, remember I told you a little bit about what the rabbi said. This accords with rabbinical teaching at the time. So these words would mean a lot different to the Jewish person just listening to Jesus. In the, in the book, A Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, volume 2, page 85, it says there's no other terms that's more consistent with rabbinical canon law than these terms remit and retain sins, or they say binding and loosing. These words are literal translations from the Hebrew. I don't want to go into that, but it's in the sense of the authority of the rabbi that they had. So if you were, a, you committed a sin or you had, let's say leprosy or you had, and you had to go to the priest or the rabbi and he would then tell you, did you do what you were supposed to do at the temple? You did. Okay. You did that. You did this. Good. So your sins are forgiven. Oh, you didn't do that. You, you have to go back to, and, and make it right. So this was a very popular rabbinical tradition to, to bind and loose and to remit and to retain. So what Jesus is saying also is that not only are you to go out and do this, that's the top level of what we get, which is cool, but the other thing is that he's ultimately taking what was responsible by the priests and the Jews at the time and the rabbis, and he's transferring that authority over to his disciples, but to do it in a different way. So they were only to remit sins in the sense that they preached to sinners the doctrine of Jesus Christ and the gospel. That in and of itself could encapsulate the meaning of this. They only retained sins in the sense that they preached the way of salvation and if somebody rejected it, his sins were held against them by God in heaven. We see Peter, right after Pentecost, say this very thing. He said, repent each of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus. For what? The remission of sins. That doesn't mean you get baptized and then you're forgiven. But he was using his authority to say, if you repent and turn to Christ and be a part of this community of believers, and you use that symbol of baptism as saying that it is, then your sins are forgiven. I have the authority to say that to you. It's the best news I've ever had in my life. And I can tell you about it. And I want to rejoice with you that you can be saved. Your sins can be forgiven. No, I don't, I don't believe that. <clears throat> I'm going to get to uh, God on my own. I got my own ways, my own plan, my own truth, my own this, my own that then I could tell you, well, you're outside of the will of God and you're going to have to pay for your own sins. Either God pays for them or you do. God's justice will not be thwarted. It will be expounded out. It will, his wrath will come down because of his justice. So as Jesus represents the Father in forgiving and retaining, we are now representatives of Jesus to the world by preaching the gospel. See, salvation is for Israel, right? It had to come to Israel first for the world. So Israel needed to be made right and forgiven so that the world could now be made right. And the gospel can now go to the Gentiles, you and I. So this plenary action, this plenary authority, there's another word for it. It's called plenipotentiary. 
with full privileges. Let me show you what that means. This means that you are an ambassador of Christ with full privileges. They used to call this a minister, believe it or not. See, because before the transmission of information was so quick, we have video now. We even, you know, even before uh, international transport or any sort of instantaneous communication, there had to be this mediator that was sent with full authority. So anything they made, any agreement, any representation, it was recognized as just as good as the president. And so you have full powers. Plenipotentiary means full and powerful. This is diplomatic language. This is political language, but it's what we are before God. And again, we are this minister. <clears throat> You're familiar with the, with the passage. 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us. See, the, see this is the remitting and remission of sins. And the retaining of sins, God making an appeal through us. What do we get to do? Proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what are we supposed to say? Beg them on behalf of Christ. That's what it says. We beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. This is your only chance. This world, this earth, this bleep on the screen in history is your time. You're on stage now. But when the curtain gets pulled, we no longer can be reconciled to God. We'll go to him, we'll, we'll, we'll confess him. You could be the biggest atheist, the most rampant unbeliever, but you will stand before Jesus and say, you are king, you are Lord. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, one way or the other. So this is a serious, serious call of action for us to implement the victory of Christ. But it's also a very serious decision on those that hear it. We shouldn't play with this responsibility. We shouldn't joke around with it. This is the people's eternal life. And, and consequently, their regular life now. When you accept Christ in your life, your life is going to change. When you fully give him everything, your life is going to change. I'm not saying it's going to be so great. I'm not saying it's going to be so bad. I'm not going to care so much about that. You're just going to have a freedom <clears throat> a, ba- a bag off your ch- a big ch- backpack that fell off your back. <clears throat> Freedom, you're looking at those sins that you thought you never could be forgiven with for. You're thinking back to how bad you used to be. You're thinking of all those times that you've humiliated yourself before God. And God says, it's, it's cool, it's done. My blood covers it. That's why I had to die on the cross. And that's why I came to save sinners. So you're a match made in heaven for Jesus. That's why he came. And he's giving you that opportunity even right now to just simply say, yes, Lord, I confess you with my mouth. I believe in my heart. Jesus is Lord. But I need you to change me, Lord, because I can't do it on my own. I don't even know what to do next. I don't know what to read. I don't know what to say. I don't talk like a Christian. I curse all the time. I don't know how to get rid of this drug I'm doing. I, it's so part of my life for so many years. I don't know how to stop this bad habit. And Jesus says, will you just be quiet and come to me? I told you I'll take care of it. And that's what he'll do. But our pride keeps us from coming. So oh, I want to wait. I got, you know, I, I got a plan. I got a plan because I'm going to start reading 
and I'm going to start praying, and I'm going to start doing really good here, and then I'm going to start coming to church regularly and, and really let everyone know that I'm a serious believer. No, that's not how it works. You'll just make it worse when you try that. Your sin will expand. It'll get harder. That's what Paul said. The law, what did it do? It made my sin be so much worse. It, ex- it, 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 it just magnifies our sin when we sit there and try to pull ourselves from the bootstraps. But when we give up and we just say, Lord, take it, take me, take my sin, I want to change, he starts leading you to do those things. And you start to move. So we have, <clears throat> we have this, um, this forgiving sins, this remitting and <clears throat> retaining. We have the garden, this new order that we're a part of. But none of this works without the Holy Spirit. None of it does. You see, we got a poor Holy Spirit doesn't get enough credit because he is God just as much as Jesus is, just as much as the Father is. And Jesus says, look, when I leave, I'm going to send you the comforter. He's going to come alongside of you. He's going to testify of me. He's going to be there for you. I've overcome the world. Take heart. You're going to have me living in you when I go. And this is where it began for the disciples. Didn't begin on Pentecost. It began right here. Holy Spirit, it comes in. Now, again, we talked about the difference. But even then, even with the Holy Spirit, they were still having unbelief. It says it in Luke. It says, while they were telling him, uh, or it says, when when Jesus came in, they were afraid and thought that they were seeing a spirit. They had unbelief with Jesus standing right in front of them. Jesus says here, I have a note, Luke 24. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened. They thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said, why are you troubled? Why why are doubts arising in your heart? See my hands, see my feet. that That it is I, myself. Touch me and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see I have. He showed him his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? Maybe that'll convince you. I'm going to start to eat. Jesus loved to eat. And so if you still have unbelief, it's okay. Jesus will take care of that. You see the grace? He has for you. He's physically in front of you and you're going, I don't, I don't believe it. No. <clears throat> Receive the Holy Spirit. Oh, now all of a sudden I can see. See, that's what the Holy Spirit does. It makes us alive. And the reason you may not feel the Holy Spirit is because of two things. You're either quenching the Spirit. Okay, quenching the Spirit is... It could be sin for sure that quenches the spirit, but quenching the spirit is you now going, I don't know if I believe this. I don't know if I'm going to trust God with that. You're taking the spirit there in your life. He's like, let's do some work in your heart. And you're going, nah. I heard a word from the Lord, but nah. And then the same person over here just said something similar. Oh, nah, never mind. And then I was driving down the road and there was like a sign that said the same thing pointing at you. Like, nah. That's not me. I'm going to quench the spirit. That's one way you don't 
you don't move to go out and do it. The other way is you grieve the Spirit with sin. Sin in your life will grieve the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit does not want, the Holy Spirit does not want to be uh, pampered and, 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 and put in sin. He is holy. He doesn't want to see things, hear things, and do things that are unholy. So we should strive for a holy life and we should constantly be evaluating ourselves and our thoughts because of who God is. Jesus is living in us. You know, you come, you have a guest come over. You know, if I'm coming over your house today, you, you would clean up. Most of you would, at least. Right? You straighten up. Pastor Pat's coming over or a friend's coming over. Let's clean up. Let's put out this. Let's put out that. But Jesus wants to come over. Jesus wants to be with you. And that sin needs to be cleaned up. And that's part of the, remit, the, the retaining and remitting aspect of it is when you turn from your sin, you can know that your sins are forgiven. You've got to turn from it every day. Turn. <clears throat> so anyway, let's go. I'm going to just go for a quick review and then say a couple more words and then we'll close. So number one, how do we do this? How do we implement Christ's achievement? Well, we have to be consciously part of this new order that Jesus launched, this new creation. Consciously be a part of that, knowing you are a new creature in the new creation, that when you go up against evil and sin, just like Jesus went up against leprosy and sickness, he didn't get sick or leprous, it turned it. It reversed the curse. And so that's what you have to do in every aspect of your life. You're living in the fallen world, but you have the light of God in you. You have the Holy Spirit in you. And when you come in contact with the world, it should be love you against evil. And what happens with love? It never fails. And it always works. It always wins. So that's being part of this new order, knowing that this is important. Your life is important. Your job is important. The people that God put, the people that you can minister to, I could never minister to. You have, sit, you have people that, you can only, that only you can reach. But if you're not conscious of what's going on and you're just waiting to get taken up to hell, I'm sorry, taken up to heaven and avoid hell, you're not going to care about it. There's lots going on. Let's get involved. Let's build for Christ's kingdom. Let's, but honestly, we have to do it by proclaiming the gospel in our lives. How do we do that? By forgiving and retaining sins, the spirit-empowered mission of the church and extending Jesus' work into the world is to be Jesus to the world and proclaim the gospel. Tell people they can be forgiven and tell people they won't be forgiven. Don't let people live in a comfy uh, uh, position in their life. I don't want you to get, you don't have to get rude with people. You don't have to be abrasive, but you need to be, if you love them, you can just say, I really care about you. So you may think this is crazy, but if you reject Jesus, let me show you what the Bible says. Then let it sit in their mind. <clears throat> and then we need the Holy Spirit to implement this achievement. Believe and trust in the risen Jesus. You're, you're keeping a clear conscience before God. That's really what, if you can just keep a clear conscience before God, don't get so focused and caught up in your sin. Get so focused and caught up in, in Christ's forgiveness for that sin, keeping your eye on him, and you'll see that you will sin less and less, and you'll become more sanctified. So keep him as your focus. <clears throat> now, 
The last part I want to say is what's the result of this implementation? I love John. Again, he wants us to hear something. He says it twice. Peace be with you. And then again, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you, right? He means it every way, however you inflect it. He wants you to have that peace. That's the rejoicing in the resurrection. Being at peace with God. What does it mean to be at peace with God? What does it mean to have that peace? It means a clear conscience, in my opinion. I mean, I could prove it scripturally too, but just a clear conscience. I'm at peace with God. There's no argument going on anymore with me and him. There's no beef between us. There's no beef between me and God. That's a clear conscience. If you don't have a clear conscience, it's your, it's your fear. You don't want to show God this. I'll just show him this, but I won't show him this. He sees it. Just give it to him. <clears throat> Would you be afraid to meet God in a dark alley right now? Would you? If you listen, he's, the, he's, a, he's a fierce contender, I'll tell you. He doesn't lose many fights. But if you're not his, I would be afraid. That dark alley is going to come one day. But Jesus says, if you believe in me, if you believe in the resurrection, though you die, you will live. And even though you live, even though you do die, you're still going to live. It's going to be a smooth transition. So have peace with God. <clears throat> I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. It's the spirit of truth. He abides with you. He'll be in you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives. I don't give you peace like the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor be fearful. And here they are fearful. See, the world doesn't give the peace that, you're, that you, you think you want the world's peace. And then when you get a piece of that peace, you're like, this ain't the peace. That's not what I want. It's a false peace. And, you, and many of you will still go for it and struggle. That's what I had to do. I had to find out for myself. And um, God uses it, and you'll learn from it. But I would say, come now. Come to him right now, right where you are, right as you are, and he will give you that peace that transcends all understanding. So let's pray. Thank the Lord for this insight into the scriptures. Lord, thank you so much, God, for what you're doing in each of our lives. Lord, you, are, you have uh, an amazing way to deal with us. And Lord, you are our Father, and you love us like a father by laying your life down for us. And Father, I pray that if there is anyone here that's yet to have acknowledged you as their Lord, as their King, as their Savior, and as their God, through the blood of Jesus, by just simply believing in him with their heart, Lord, I pray that they would do that right now, that they would just cry out to you, or maybe even whisper to you, or maybe just a slight thought, but Lord, those that are doing it, Lord, come, come on strong with them, Lord. Comfort them, love them, make them a new creature. And we just thank you, Lord, and we praise you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's stand together and we'll, we'll sing our last song and then we'll have some announcements and then we'll close. I do recommend the hymnals for this one just because there's a couple of different parts. But... The hymnals are right back in the, on the right there, Noah. Was my son Noah back there? Um, Little guy, where's Milton? Milton, you know, you can get him for us. All right, I'll well, take care of him. Yeah. Still, yeah.
So it's uh, number 163 for whenever you get it.